If you're able, would you remain standing for the reading of God's Word? We're turning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. And we are going to be reading verses 15 through 18 as we consider John the Baptist's testimony concerning Jesus. So the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, starting at verse 15. This is the word of our Lord. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you'd speak mightily to us this morning. We pray that your word would convict us. We pray that your word would comfort us. We pray that your word would cause us to live righteously for asking Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We are, we are studying the first year of Jesus' public ministry, the first of three years. About 19 sermons on that, and we are going morning and afternoon on those sermons And we've seen so far that John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the long-expected Messiah. The last bona fide prophet had left the scene 400 years prior to the time that we're reading here in the ministry of Malachi in the Old Testament. The heavens had been silent all the while, yet many Messianic figures were running around the desert claiming to be the promised Messiah. So when you read the reticence, the, the, how people are hesitant to believe John and Jesus, don't take that in a vacuum. There's all kinds of people claiming to be the Messiah when John and Jesus came into um, the picture. John the Baptist, though, is different than them all. He dressed in camel skins. He ate locusts. And I, in talking to some of you, I realized that some of you don't know what a locust is. It's a really big grasshopper. That's what he ate, you know, uh, and dipped in honey. I don't know if he was dipped or not, but he ate honey (laughs) as well. And the biggest difference between him and all these other people claiming to the Messiah is that John explicitly said, I am not the Messiah. I'm here to prepare the way for the Messiah. I'm here to point to him. I am not the Messiah. He was a prophet. He was a preacher. He was the greatest, as Jesus says, of the Old Testament prophets. His message was very simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he stirred quite a commotion. And all of Judea became interested in what he had to say and would come to hear What he had to say, and those that responded to his preaching with repentance, he baptized with whatever water he could find in his itinerant ministry along the Dead Sea and southern Jordan Valley. Not only did he baptize them, but he also exhorted them to live lives that displayed their repentance that led to 
their baptism. And today, now we transition from John's ministry of preparation to Jesus' ministry of fulfillment. This morning, we'll consider John the Baptist's testimony concerning Jesus Christ. And then this afternoon, we're going to look at John's baptism as he baptizes his cousins, his cousin Jesus. In verse 15, Luke says, Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was Christ or not, John's ministry raised all kinds of questions in the minds of the people who heard him preach. Is he Elijah? Is he the prophet like unto Moses? Is he the Messiah? Is he just another crook that uh, is coming to tell us? He does look a little deranged, they may may have thought, in his camel outfit and eating locusts. Now, John the Evangelist provides more details about what was going on through was going through people's minds. Now, just a note here: um, John the Baptist is the guy that wears camel clothes, camel skin outfit, eat locusts, and baptizes. John the Evangelist is the guy that wrote the Gospel of John. So, when you read the Gospel of John and you find the name John in the Gospel of John, he's always referring to John the Baptist. Are you with me? The evangelist never refers to himself by name. He uses um, a title that could come across as a little prideful. He calls himself always as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, That's how he refers to himself in the gospel. So when the name John is found in the gospel of John, it's always John the Baptist. And John the evangelist provides more details about what was going through people's mind. In John chapter 1, verses 19 to 23, we read, Now this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. I am not the anointed one of God. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Are you literally Elijah coming back from heaven? And John says, I am not. Are you the prophet? Remember in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses said that there will be a prophet come that will come like unto him. And so they asked, are you the prophet? John says, no. Then they said to him, who are you? That we might give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And then John said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So that that's, tells us what the people were thinking about John and, and what John told them back. And notice that these questions are coming from a place of expectation. In verse 15 says, as the people were in expectation, they were looking for something from the Lord. They couldn't wait to see what the Lord was going to do. Is He about to fulfill all the promises that we've been waiting for so long? Is this the one? So they are coming to John with great expectation. And in a similar way, we should be expecting to see the work of the Lord as well. Because the Lord is working right here, right now, in our lives. Now, we expect it, not in the demanding way, but in faith, knowing that all the promises as He has in Amen in Jesus Christ, we look for the good things that God is doing in our midst. We look for the evidences of grace that 
uh, God is displaying in the lives of those around us. We believe that God is at work. We have this expectation like the people did in the time of John. And we look at everybody with these eyes of expectations. What good thing is God doing in my brother's, in my sister's life? And if we look with those glasses, we will find the good that God is doing in each other's lives. Can you imagine how great our relationships would be if we would be looking for the work, the good work of God in our lives instead of looking for ways to criticize one another, looking for ways to put each other down, looking for ways in which everybody else is failing? The people of God looked at John with expectation. What good things is God going to do through him? And we should be ex- looking with expectation too at what God is doing in our midst. I want you also to notice here in verse 15 that they responded to John's ministry and preaching with thinking. Again, verse 15, Luke says, Now as the people were in expectation, they all reasoned in their hearts about John. They saw John, they heard John, and that led him to think. That's the greatest thing that a preacher could hope, is that the people who hear him preach would think about the things that were <laughs> proclaimed. Uh, I remember there was this guy to come to church, an older elder, gone to be with the Lord. He would sit somewhere halfway to the sanctuary. He would stand up and he would preach. I don't know. I think the moment we said, turn to, that was it. That was, that was it. He was out to the point of snoring. We could hear him snoring. And then at the end of the sermon, he would meet you at the door. Good sermon, Pastor. What are you talking about? (laughs) Good in the sense that it helped you sleep or whatever? (laughs) The greatest compliment, the greatest benefit, the greatest thing that I think a preacher is looking for is that people actually interact with what he, he preaches. That people are mad at him for what he said or that people are convicted, or that people are questioning, or that people are excited, or that whatever. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of times we'd be satisfied with any sign of life um, in the people that listens to uh, the preaching of God's word. The people of John's time responded with thinking. And I think that a lack of response to the preaching of God's word is evidence of the absence of the Spirit is the absence of the work of the Spirit in our midst, in our lives, in our hearts. Now, last week we saw that the people responded to John's preaching with repentance and obedience. This week they are responding with thinking and questioning. Is John the Christ? He does check all the boxes. Is he it? He sounds like him. This message sounds like what the Christ would be preaching. Is he him? And they thought about the things that they heard. On the side note, by the way, the Christian faith is never afraid of questions. These people came with questions to John. The Christian faith is never afraid of questions. J.C. Ryle, in his thoughts on the Gospel of Luke, says, The truth of Christ has nothing to fear from sober examination. We court inquiry. We desire to have it explained fully investigated. So John welcomed these people that were coming to question what he was saying. Because he knew that his faith is solid, it can be questioned, and the answer will be there. As a matter of fact, remember the challenge that Isaiah gave to the people of God who were rebelling against him in Isaiah 1, verse 18? Come, 
And do what? Let us reason. Let's argue this out. And you see that though your sins were as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. And then Luke continues in verse 16. He says, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John does not want in any way to be confused with Christ. He, he, he doesn't want to, to give any indication that he is the Messiah of God. He says, Christ is more powerful than I am. Christ is worthy of more honor than I am. I'm not even worthy of untying the laces of his muddy sandals. And you, I hope you understand that this is a, a time of open air sewage. There's no sewer system. There's, it's muddy. It, people walk everywhere. And John says, I'm not even worthy... Don't call me the Christ, because I'm not even worthy to untie his filthy sandals. That's how low I am. He says, Christ's baptism is different than mine. I'm not the Christ. And as a faithful minister of the gospel, he exalts Christ instead of himself. I am not he. He's greater than I. And in that way, he reflects Paul's ministry. When he tells to uh, the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservant for Jesus. Again, J.C. Ryle, in his thoughts on the Gospel of Luke, says, A minister who is really doing us good will make us think more of Jesus every year we live. And that's exactly what John is doing. I'm not the Christ. He is coming. And then when he comes, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Don't look at me. Look at him. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I must decrease. He must increase. And that's the ministry of John. And he says, Christ is more powerful. Christ is worthy of honor. His baptism is different than mine. Now, the uh, being more powerful and worthy of more honor is fairly straightforward. We understand that. It's easy to understand what that means, what John means by that. But the baptism of the Spirit and fire needs a little more explanation. John says that's what the Messiah will do. Uh, He says, I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, John's baptism foreshadows the baptism with which the glorified Christ is going to baptize the church. Now, this is a reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church and the continuing purifying ministry of the Spirit in the life of the church. Holy Spirit and fire here are synonymous. And how do we know in verse 16? Because in the original language, baptism is linked with spirit and fire by one with. John doesn't say that he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He says that the Messiah is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, attaching the spirit and fire, making them synonymous. They're the same thing here. And how, how did that happen? How did Christ baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire? Well, remember what the ascended Christ told, the ascending Christ told his church? As he's about to go up in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem 
in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as, that, as, as the book of Acts continues in chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, it says this in, verse two, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. And later on, that's referred to the pouring of the Holy Spirit, which is exactly the mode of baptism that John used and that the church uses today. This, is, this baptism of the Holy Spirit in fire is the once-for-all baptism of the Holy Spirit upon the church to empower her to accomplish all that her head has set for her to accomplish. It's not something that has to happen over and again. Baptism is, is once, and that's it. You don't need to be rebaptized or re-rebaptized or triple baptized. The church was baptized once in Acts chapter 2, and that baptism continues to empower her by the power of the Spirit to accomplish the things that God has called her to accomplish. At the same time, the Holy Spirit continues to work in the church as a purifying agent like fire. And particularly in the book of 1 Peter, the Holy Spirit is equated with fire, that fire that purifies silver and gold. He's purifying us from all the uh, imperfections that we have unto the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this baptism is directly related to the first coming of Jesus. He did that when he came for the first time, as he has ascended into heaven. But as the rest of the prophetic literature in the Bible often does, the first and second coming of the Son of God are prophesied, are seen as one event even here. So in the next, very, in the next verse, John conflates or brings together the two comings of Christ with the judgment that is to follow in verse 17. Brothers and sisters, more often than not, the scriptures are more concerned with the fullness of the ministry of Christ than with when certain things will happen. We Westerners, we who live in a Western culture, are the ones concerned with timelines, especially if you're in classical conversation. You love timelines. Everything is about a timeline. And the Western mind tends to think that way. The, the biblical mind didn't think that way. They're not so concerned about Charts and arrows and goings ups and goings downs. They, they wanted to think about the fullness of the <laughs> ministry of Christ. And often prophecies were given that way. Both first and second coming conflated together. Looked at one thing, the ministry of Christ. And we see that here in verses 16 and 17 with the baptism of the spirit and fire being related to the first coming of Christ. And then verses seven, verse 17 been a prophecy about his second coming. There in verse 17, Luke says, his, that, that's John the Baptist speaking, Luke relating it to us, his winnowing, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John uses here a farming analogy to deliver a message of judgment. The scene that John is describing is a farmer. After the harvest of wheat is done, all the wheat's been 
come in, it's completed. The farmer separating the grain that can be used for food from the husk or the chaff that has no use other than for burning. That's the picture that uh, John the Baptist painting here of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And the farmer would do that by spreading the harvest on the threshing floor, and then with a winnowing fork, which is a better translation than winnowing fen, he would uh, dig into the whole wheat on the floor, <coughs> throw it up, and then the wind would blow and carry the chaff off the, win- the, the, um, winnowing, uh, the threshing floor, and the, the actual grain, which is heavier, would fall back down onto the threshing floor and be ready to, to, threat, to be threshed, to be ground, to be used for good purposes. The chaff would, would, the only thing that would be good for the husk leftover is to burn. And it would burn so hot that it would be difficult to put it out till it was all consumed. Everyone in his audience would have understood what he was talking about. Everyone would know what the, the harvest of wheat would be like. And this was a very shocking message to the first century Jew, that they are going to be judged by the Messiah, that their, his winnowing fork is ready to throw them up, and that the wind, as it were, decide who is faithful and who is not. Because they thought that the Messiah was coming to judge the nations, the Gentiles, and exalt them. And for John to say, no, your Messiah is coming primarily to judge you, it was a big shock for them. Now, John's proclamation of judgment teaches several things. First one is that the harvest is currently taking place. The wheat is being brought in. The wheat is being brought into the church through conversions. People from every tribe, from every tongue, from every ethnic group are being added to the church. We hear reports of conversions all over the world. Some of them probably not false. I, the other day I heard that <clears throat> the entire population of Ethiopia has been saved four times according to missionary reports uh, in the modern in the last 30 years. So there's a miscounting of people here. But the Spirit is working and people are being brought into the church and conversions are happening. The harvest is happening. And we need to pray that the Lord of the harvest would bring workers to bring the harvest in as our Lord Jesus Christ tells us to do. So the harvest is taking place. The wheat's being brought in. But it also teaches us that the visible church in its local representation, that's it, every, every local church, is always a mix of believers and unbelievers. In this room right now, there are believers and unbelievers. And that's true of it every single Sunday. There's always grain good for food and chaff good for fire in any gathering of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to remain to be so till the coming of the Lord Jesus. Only at His coming that's going to be a separation. And that's clearly taught in the parable of the wheat and tare, or the wheat and weeds, uh, depending on what translation you have, where um, the, the, the true wheat and the weed that looks like wheat are mixed together, and they're not going to be separated till the harvest is completed at the coming of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you realize that, but there are at least five groups of people in the church. And I think that's true of this church, because I think it's true of every local church. One group is believers who know they believe. That's that's believers that truly believe and they're assured of their faith. The, The other group is believers who struggle with their faith. 
believers that are true believers, but they struggle with their assurance of their faith. The third group are unbelievers who know that they're unbelievers and are not hiding that. The fourth group are unbelievers who know that they're unbelievers, but they are pretending to be believers. What is the fifth group? Unbelievers who don't know that they're unbelievers, who think that they are, they truly think they are believers. These are the five groups that are in every local church. Let me ask you, which one are you? Which, look at your heart and which one are you in the face of Christ, in the presence of Christ? Listen to J.C. Ryle's exhortation. He says, we have been baptized with water, but have we also been baptized with the Holy Ghost? Our names are in the baptismal register, but are they also in the Lamb's book of life? We are members of the visible church, but are we also members of that mystical body of which Christ alone is the head? Who are you? Are you the real deal? Or are you pretending to be wheat? Now, Jesus, the Bible often speaks of judgment, and the judgment will happen several times. It will happen the moment that person dies. Last Saturday, a week ago, Jody died at 10 something in the morning. And at that moment, she was judged by her Lord and found not just not guilty but 100% innocent because of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that it is appointed to, for men once to die, after that, the judgment. It is what we believe concerning Christ in this life that matters. Once this life is over, there is no more time for decisions. Since you don't know when your life will end, listen to me, you don't know when your life will end. It is only what you believe concerning Christ at this minute that matters. Nothing else in your life matters other than what you believe concerning Christ right now. And what is it that you believe? The, in, John, in Luke chapter 16, we have the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And Abraham tells to the, to the rich man who is in hell, begging for some relief, begging that something happened. He says, Abraham tells him, you had your whole life. And you chose not to trust in the Messiah. Now there's nothing that can be done. But there's also judgment that, return, that, we, that will happen, that return of our Lord. So at the return of our Lord, the visible church will be purified. Those that are alive during the time of our Lord will be purified, and believers and unbelievers will be identified and separated. And then we'll have a pure church. That's taught in Matthew 25 with the three parables, the virgins, the ten virgins, the talents. Remember the ten talents, five talents, well, five talents, two talents, and one talent. And then the parable of the goats and the sheep being separated. Also, at the return of Christ, those who died in the faith, in the faith, or are believers at the time, will be judged and acquitted 
in the resurrection of the righteous. On that day, Jody will rise up, no need of Cain, no struggles with breathing, no struggles with sin, her body and soul perfected. On that day, those who have lost loved ones will be reunited to them in body and soul for an eternal and glorious life before the Lord in perfection because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, at the end of the millennium, the unbelievers, the unrighteous of all times, will be raised and final judgment will be pronounced upon them. And then the end comes. And this judgment is severe beyond your wildest nightmares. Unquenchable fire. If that doesn't drive you to pray for the unbelievers, I don't know what will. That your loved ones that are outside of Christ... They perish now, they'll spend eternity in suffering. The Lord says in the parable of the sheep and the goat, He will also say to those on the left, and depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He says in other place that's better to go into life eternal with one foot than to, with two feet be cast into hell into a fire that shall never be quenched. But brothers and sisters, for those of you who believe, you don't have to fear the judgment because Jesus Christ was judged for your sins and now you stand as righteous in the presence of God. For he who knew no sin became guilty of sin so that you could be made the righteousness of God. And John continue, uh, Luke continues in verse 18, he says, And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. And we only have a very small sample of John's preaching. Luke tells us that he preached all the time. We know him as the baptizer, but he's also known as the preacher. And this word preached here in verse 6, 7, 18 is better translated as proclaimed the good news. This teaches us that though he proclaims heart-stopping judgment here, his preaching was also filled with grace. Grace accompanies the warning to flee from the judgment to come. Friends, do you realize that God is gracious towards you? The Apostle Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord hasn't returned yet, and every day He is not back is not proof that He doesn't exist. It's not that. Every day he hasn't returned yet is another day of grace towards you so that you may repent of your sins. What do you believe concerning Jesus now? So to you, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely today. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist. We thank you for his preaching. And we thank you that he has pointed us to Christ, even this morning, 2,000 years after he went to be with you. We thank you that our Lord, who knew no sin, became guilty of sin for us. And we pray for those among us who don't believe in Jesus, that you change their hearts, that they might know him today as their Savior and not as their judge. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.